Good morning, City Light. Good morning, good morning. Hey, my name's Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Really glad you're here this Sunday morning. Uh, Christmas is upon us, as we know. It is that time of year. I'm so excited to get into the Word of God this morning. I want you to open your Bible or your device to Luke chapter 1. Same place we were in last week. Luke chapter 1. We're talking about Advent. Advent is a time of preparation. It's a time of eagerness, of expectation. Um, It's a time of waiting. And for the Christian, it's a time of knowing that that waiting of the people before Jesus was answered in the birth of Jesus. It's a waiting that brings us assurance today that God is faithful. It's a waiting that informs the waiting that we practice now between his first and his second coming. Um, By way of introduction this morning, I want to tell a story. It's a story of a really special people group. It was the people of Israel. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people. In all of the globe, in all of the earth, this was God's chosen people. This was a people group that enjoyed fellowship with God like no one else did. It was a a people through whom God would be represented to neighboring nations. And it was a people that God would be known by. And there's a time in the Old Covenant scriptures where Israel, um, the presence of God is in one city. It's in one temple It's for one group of people. Tell me that's not so special. To be among those people and to have that kind of relationship with God. Unique to you, exclusive to you. But the presence and power of God, don't miss this, are withdrawn from the people of Israel. The prophet Ezekiel tells of a vision that ends up coming true of Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord moving away from the threshold of the temple. The cherubim lifting their wings and ascending from earth right before their eyes. This was due to Israel's constant over and over disobedience. Constantly wayward, maybe being obedient for a short period of time, falling back into idolatry, worshiping other gods, God got to a point where he gave them the worst sentence that you could imagine. His absence. He pulled himself away from these people. And without God's power, without God's presence, Israel was doomed. The story gets really, really bad. And that happened about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. For a couple hundred years, there would still be prophetic voices speaking about a coming Messiah. That would end with Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, 400 years before the coming of Jesus. The United States of America is 250 years old. I I want us to put into perspective the length of time that accrued where there was no presence from God. There was no voice from God. There was no sense of God's covering and his blessing 
It was just like this wandering desert, but the people continued to practice the religion. In 60 BC, about 60 years before Jesus was born, it was said that when Rome occupied Jerusalem, the people were obviously brokenhearted, but what made things worse was there was a Roman commander that marched his way into this holy temple. And he walked into the Holy of Holies. And he came back out. And he said, there's nothing here. Absence of God is the worst curse on the human life. Having no relationship with him, having no sense of his power in your life, having no sense of his presence. You can imagine that the people of Israel for this long faced doubt and disappointment. God, where are you? You made promises that you're not keeping. Are you even real? That is the background of Luke 1, and I want you to pick it up with me in verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both, just putting it bluntly, very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple. Remember everything I just said, please. Remember everything I just said. Think about this moment. For his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, but the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For, why? He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before his birth. That's next level. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also, and to be kind to her, well along in years. Then the angel rightly said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. And when he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. 
Then they realize from his gestures that his silence, that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. I don't have to listen to my husband talk for nine months. Wait. (laughs) He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Pick it back up with me all the way over in verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zachariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed, there is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. And he motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Church, do you know what the name John means? God is gracious. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what would this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Why do we take the time to read through that entire narrative? Why does this matter this morning that we talk about Zechariah and his experience with the angel and the song that he is about to sing? Here's one of the things I want to press in. You may be here this morning, life is going on. It's just moving forward. As a Christian, you may find yourself feeling disappointment, feeling doubt. Why? Because disappointment clouds our ability to believe and trust in God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Disappointment clouds our ability to believe and trust in God. We live in the church age. We are a people in waiting. We're waiting for all the answers. We're waiting for Jesus to come and make all things new. We're waiting for something in our life to be set right. We're waiting for relief. You, a human being, are waiting for something more and different. That's why you're here. If you don't feel a daily conscious awareness of God in your life right now, if you don't feel in tune with his voice and you're not experiencing an interactive relationship with him, it's radio silence. If you're here this morning and your life actually wouldn't look that much different if you discovered that God was never with you after all, I've got a word for you. This morning is a sermon of reassurance. It's a sermon to remind you that you are not alone in those feelings. God is here, City Light. God is here. That's the message of Christmas. God is here. His presence and his power, his existence, his friendship, they change everything 
in our human existence. Your life experience is totally different when you bow your knee to Jesus, you turn from sin, and you walk in ongoing relationship with the one who made you. I don't know your story, but I know mine. And I know that when I gave my life to Jesus, every single part of me, every part of my life began to change. God began a good work in me that he has promised that he is going to continue to do until the day he comes again. This is what we hold to. This is a faith that we possess as Christian people. God hasn't gone anywhere. Can I say that again? I don't know what your experience is of God. God knows what your experience is of him. He has not gone anywhere. And I want to reassure you of that. Not only does he have the whole world in his hands, he has your life, my friend, in his hands. Take heart, Christian, and far be it from us to experience a life where God seems absent. In Deuteronomy, it says that God is faithful to a thousand generations. In fact, the entire song that we're getting ready to read through and study together from Zechariah is a past tense song. It's just like Mary last week. Everything he's singing is before anything has actually happened, but because God declared it to be so, it is so. It defines reality. There is nothing that will thwart the plans and the promises of Yahweh. Nothing in this world can stop him. Could it be that just like Zechariah in his waiting could sing a song that we're about to read like this? Could it be that we would sing the same song, that we would have the same kind of assurance, that we would walk in the same promises, that we would believe in the same God that Zechariah believed in? All the promises made of Jesus' second coming to set things right, to make all things new, they can be sung right now, today, in thanksgiving as if they've already happened. What a life. What a gift. What a grace. So where are we going this morning? We're going to talk together about the rule of God being here. We're going to talk together about the mercy of God being here. At Christmas, we're going to talk together about the light of God being here and how that ought to change our life. So I want you to pick it up with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. We're just going to keep going. Then John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. And it better be a 10 out of 10 because he hasn't talked for nine months. He's had a lot of time to think about this, I assume. Praise the Lord or blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant, David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. Zechariah is a Jewish priest. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the stories. One thing he's familiar with is the covenants. He knows the promises that God has made to his people Israel, one of those being the covenant he made with David. It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Davidic covenant is a covenant that entails a lot of things, but here's God's promise to King David way back when. It's amazing. He promises that through David's seed, through David's line, one will come who will establish an eternal, everlasting, unshakable kingdom. 
that all the enemies of Israel, of God's people, will be subdued. That a kingdom will come where the Messiah would reign in righteousness and justice. Israel will enjoy prosperity. Jerusalem will have prominence. Gentiles like you and me will be blessed. Peace will prevail everywhere across the globe. All of the immoral conditions of the world will rise uh, to, to morality, excuse me, to holiness. Knowledge of God will be universal. Sorrow will turn to rejoicing. Grieving and mourning will be done away with forever. The Lord himself will sit on the throne and operate as the king. What a thought. But this hasn't been reality for Zechariah and his people. No, Israel has been a troubled nation, a disobedient nation. Israel has been a, a tragic story of God's withdrawal at this point. Reality was that Israel was a small, fragile, beat-up group of people. And they had seen nothing of this promise. So you can imagine why the words are so important. Look with me at verse 68. He has visited and redeemed his people. That's Old Testament language. God has broken in. God has stepped in. God has intervened. Do you have a story, Christian, of God breaking into your life? You were in a place that was hopeless. You were in a place where you had addictions. You were in a place where you were chasing the wrong things. They were coming back empty. You were looking for love in all the wrong places. You were insecure. You were without faith. God broke into your story, uprooted sin in your life, changed you forever. This is the story of the gospel. It's not a story of you and me putting on our backpacks and climbing up the mountain to God. It's a story of a God who loves you, who comes down to you. He descends to you. He becomes one of you. He identifies with you. He forgives you. He loves you. He's a God who has come to do everything for us because we can't do it ourselves. Ooh, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to get to that. Look at these words. He has sent us a mighty Savior. Not just a Savior, a mighty Savior. In other translations that are more true, I think, horn of salvation. He has sent us a horn of salvation. Psalm 132, 17. God makes the promise, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Um, I have to do it. Y'all seen the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> BK, I know you have. Your wife, not so much. She's not a fan, but that's okay. Um, doesn't matter if you haven't seen them or, or read the books. Here's all you need to know. There's this image that just kept coming to my mind as I was thinking about a horn of salvation, right? Um, it's the third movie, The Return of the King. It's this, this, the, the biggest, most epic battle ever on film. And what you have is you have one last bastion of good. And it's game over. There's a massive plane filled with evil creatures. And the battle is raging. The doors have been broken down. This bastion is being infiltrated. Uh, women and children being killed. I mean, it's, it's dark. And, and out of nowhere, I don't know if you remember this, all of a sudden, when all seems lost, you hear... And every 
creature, good and evil, stops and looks over to this massive hillside. And up rides the riders of Rohan, horseback men, warriors, coming to the aid of this bastion. And the way that J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, who was a Christian, the way he wrote this is how I want us to envision it when it comes to Jesus being the horn of salvation. Here's what he says. And straight away, all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and thunder in the mountains. This is what it looks like for Jesus to trample Satan, sin, and death. Sound the horn, Christians. You may be here right now and you are discouraged. You may feel like right now there are spiritual battles that you are waging and you're losing them. They're battles in your mind, they're battles of depression, they're battles of fear, of worry. You have a real enemy. We've talked about this before as a church. Satan and demons are real. You are fighting war every day, whether or not you want to acknowledge it or not. And I have really, really good news. There is a king that don't lose, that you belong to, Christian. His stamp is on you. You are united to him. The evil one cannot touch you. You belong to his kingdom. You are under his protection. You are in an unfailing family of God. You've been adopted child of God. There is no victory that you cannot experience in him. We are selling war horns out in the lobby today for your family. I'll take two. Yeah, yeah. I want to say to the Christians in the room, you are a soldier. You're marching in battle. And Zechariah is pointing you right now in these moments to a mighty Savior, to the horn of salvation. God is here, and he brings with him his rule. The rule of God is here. There is no better king to serve. There is no better king to belong to. There is no more generous king. There is no more kind king. Christian, you can experience the rule of God and all the blessings of it today because Jesus came in that manger. The rule of God is here to stay. Jesus ushered in the kingdom. All of us will experience the fullness of that kingdom if we belong to Christ. That is our future. That is our hope. That's what's ahead of us. You know, they say like the, your best days are ahead of you. I, I don't know what that means for everybody. For a, a child of God, for a believer, that's 100% true. Our best days are ahead of us. The rule of God is here. I want to keep reading in verse 72. Follow along with me. God has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant. The covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God, this is huge, without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. This is him now moving from the Davidic covenant. He points back even further to the Abrahamic covenant. This is a promise that God made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you through your family that I bless will come blessing to the whole globe. Zechariah, right in front of his eyes, he's realizing his son is going to be the forerunner 
for the man who comes to do that, to accomplish that. And the words that I want to hone in on here are this. 72, he has been what? Merciful. He's been merciful to our ancestors. The word for mercy um, in the original language, it, it refers to God's inner organs. It refers to what's deep within him that doesn't change. It's embedded in his very nature. It's not something that he chooses to exercise sometimes. God is mercy. He loves mercy. I don't know what your relationship looks like right now with God, but can I just encourage you? God is tender. Do you view God that way? In your everyday? Think about him and how you think about him every day. Do you think he is tender? Do you view him as merciful? Church, I want you to know the mercy of God is here in Jesus. The mercy of God is here. Maybe you're here this morning and there's um, habitual sin in your life. Maybe you're here and you have this unshakable attitude, bitterness, unforgiveness toward someone. Maybe you're here this morning and you are dragging yourself to church right now today and you're sitting in that not comfortable metal seat in this gym and a part of you that maybe you wouldn't want to admit is thinking, I'm here because I, I need to get right with God. I'm here because if I don't do this, something will be off with me and God. I'm here to check the religious box to make sure that we're in right standing. I sit underneath, I listen to his word, I, I sing the songs. I want to change your mind if, if God would allow me to do that. What had been the history of Israel in these moments? What had been the history of God's people? Uh, they were serving the Lord, but they were always one step away from divine judgment. Uh, you think about the book of Judges. The Israelites would get a new leader. Everything would go south. They would repent. They'd come back to God. They would say, you're our Lord, our King. They would he'd supply a new leader. It would spiral out of control and sin. Over and over and over again. It gets really, really dark in the book of Judges, in the story of Judges. But, verse 75. The time has come under the Messiah that we will serve him with no fear of judgment. What does it look like to serve God without fear? What does it look like to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live? Newsflash, we can't do that left to ourselves. In fact, right now, apart from the saving work of Jesus, apart from his righteousness being our righteousness, apart from something being apportioned to us from heaven, we do not have righteousness and holiness before God. We serve him in fear of his judgment. Zechariah is realizing in these moments that God is coming and he's going to do something where we don't have to serve him with fear. We can actually be regarded by God as holy, as righteous, as good, when we're actually not. This is called the great exchange. This is a, a really important part of the gospel message, the good news of Christianity. When Jesus comes, he takes on our life and becomes our representative 
The great exchange is that Jesus takes our sin, we get his righteousness. It's that God treats you and I the way that Jesus deserves, while he treats his son the way that we deserve. This is mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Tender mercy. Who are we that God would look at us and decide to send his one and only son? That whoever among us believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Who are we who sin regularly against a holy, almighty God that he would look at us in love, pursue us, move toward us, descend down to us and give us mercy, mercy, mercy. It's yours. It's pictured in Jesus. The book of Romans, the apostle Paul rejoices. He rejoices in the good news at the heart of the Christian faith that this righteousness, this holiness that we cannot attain has become ours in Jesus, not by works, but by faith, by belief, by trust in the one who has gone before us and done what we could not do. Only God can make it so that by faith and not works, he can see you, my friend, as holy and righteous. Let me ask you a question. I've probably asked this before. How secure do you think Jesus is before God the Father? How secure do you think Jesus is before God the Father? You, Christian, by faith are united to Jesus. How secure do you think you are before God the Father? If Jesus has cloaked you in his righteousness and if he's your representative. Wow! This is amazing assurance and security. This is amazing mercy. By way of application, mercy should not produce weird religiosity in us mercy should make it so that when we're here on a sunday morning and we're standing together and we're singing these songs something happens to our face and it's called a smile it's called joy it's called something that you might be lacking a lot in your life right now it's called happiness it's called god thank you you've been so gracious to me you've been so merciful to me you've made the way You've given life where there was death. God, thank you. Thank you. I want to move on to verse 76. John is now, excuse me, Zechariah is now going to turn and he's going to address his little son, John. And he says, you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation in a new way through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy here we go the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace wow most jews understood throughout the old testament that these promises of god were to rescue them from earthly enemies but we know it's not just that We know that God came to rescue his people not just from earthly enemies, but from spiritual enemies that kill our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The only hope, then, to receive this promise to David, this promise to Abraham, is to believe in the new covenant. It's to believe in the covenant made with Jesus that offers forgiveness for your sin once and for all time. The way to experience this new covenant 
in Christ is to be given a new heart. It's to be given a new mind. It's to be made a new creation. It's not to go from making poor decisions and being a fool to being really, really wise and making better decisions with your life incrementally. And then hopefully one day God will approve of that and grant you entrance into heaven. No, no, no. It's to die to your old self. It's to become a totally new creation, new desires, new longings, new hope, new joy, new faith. It's an internal transformation where God writes something brand new on our heart. You know, um, I've heard this quote before, and I don't know who it comes from. There's a lot of those out there, right? But I want you to remember something as we're talking about God's mercy. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. There is no national, moral, political change that we can make that will bring any hope and healing to our world. It is only the change of the human heart, which Jesus Christ provides. The language in verse 79 that talks about giving light to those who sit in darkness. It says in verse 78 that Jesus is the morning light from heaven. It's borrowed from Isaiah. It was a prophecy made way back then. It said the sunrise from on high to visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. The word sunrise is actually in Greek, the rising. Imagine the sunrise in the morning and how the moment that light breaks, every bit of darkness is gone. There's no slow thing that happens there. The moment the sun peaks over the horizon, darkness is gone. Yes, we have different variations of light throughout the day, but darkness is gone the moment that makes its first appearance. This is what happened in the world when Jesus Christ came in the flesh to dwell among us. He brought light. What, what is darkness, church? What is darkness? Maybe we all have different definitions of that. I want to tell you, in, in Scripture, darkness is used to describe ignorance. It's used to describe blindness. It's used to describe what is hidden, what cannot be seen. It's also used to describe sin. It's used to describe the presence of Satan. It's used to describe wickedness. That's darkness. That's where our world sat in trouble before God made our problems his problems. And he sent his son. It's used to describe, darkness is used to describe the absence of God. Can I just ask you a question? How important is the presence of God to you? How important is the presence of God to you in your life? You would not have it. I would not have it if it was not for Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Light is truth. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. All of this is possible because of the new, God, new covenant that God established with us through the work of his son. I think back to, um, and I, I don't bring this up as much anymore, but God led me here. I think back to when I got a cancer diagnosis, 29 years old, 
Um, we had just planted the church, and there was a lot of stuff going on in my mind. And there's something amazing about being a born-again Christian where um, something in your inner being completely changes. You actually, uh, the, the, it, Scripture tells us the light of Christ has shone into your heart. There's no darkness there anymore. And that, that truth that was in my heart led me in some really hard moments when I didn't quite know what was happening. I didn't know uh, what my future was going to look like. I didn't know what my participation in CLB was going to look like. I didn't know how I was going to be a husband, uh, a father, uh, had just had a baby. Um, there were a lot of tears and a lot of broken moments of hallelujah because um, I realized that even when I wasn't experiencing it, truth was truth. And I had in every moment a God whose light had come into my heart and was not leaving. And that truth held me through a lot of moments. It holds us through a lot of moments when the world wants to tell us something different, when our own mind and our own flesh want to tell us something different, praise God for his spirit in us that teaches us all truth. We need it. We cannot do life alone. We need life with God. I'm curious this morning if God, in the language that Zechariah uses, has visited and redeemed your life. If he has broken into your story. If he has made all things new in you. If your heart has become his home, you can be reassured, if, if you are a believer this morning, you can be reassured that Christmas time is a time to celebrate, that the mercy of God is here, the light of God is here. I want to close by leading us into a time of communion. I think it's very fitting. Um, this was not planned, actually. Communion was scheduled for today, ended up with this text, and I think it's wonderful. It's a chance for our church to remember the new covenant that we live in, in Christ. I want to go in my Bible over to Luke chapter 22. And I want to read to you from Luke 22:14. It says, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. We're going to partake in communion. This is something that the church has done for a very long time. It's a sacrament. This is something that is um, reserved for the Christian. So if you're here this morning... And you'd say, I have not bowed my knee to Jesus. I've not surrendered my life to him. I have not um, said, God, you run my life. 
I've not asked for forgiveness of sin. I've not felt the weight of that. This is not for you. That's okay. My prayer, as it always is when we partake in communion, is that you can just look around the room and you can see a witness of people standing and going to each of these tables and taking the symbolic blood and body of Jesus and remembering right here, right now, in these sacred moments that we live in a new covenant. The separation that sin causes between God and us has been torn and broken down. We are no longer God's enemies. We are his children. This is what we celebrate today at communion. I want to pray for us, and then I want to offer um, instruction right before I do that. At your leisure, you can get up, come and partake at these tables, go back to your seat. We're going to sing, we're going to worship together. And at your leisure, you can partake in the elements this morning. Let me pray. Oh, God. Please restore to us this morning a spirit of worship that we have lost. Restore to us this morning a a sense of reality that you are here and God with you comes all good things, all good gifts. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sin. May we never graduate or move on from that good news. And I'm simply asking one thing, Holy Spirit, in these moments, please forbid us from tradition and please invite us and all of our emotions and all of our being into being fully present with you in worship. We ask this in Jesus' name.